All right, good morning, guys. How are you all? Good? I feel like I got too much slack here. Uh, my name's Nick. Welcome to Mercy Hill. Um, if I have not met you, I'd love to meet you. Um, one of the elders here, lead pastor, um, happy to bring you guys God's word here. Um, you can go ahead and open up to uh, Luke chapter 2. We're in verse 21 now. Uh, if you need a Bible, uh, please raise your hand. If you don't have a Bible, keep it. Um, Merry Christmas. Happy Easter. It was awesome uh, having Patty doing some backup vocals. Well, that was great. Uh, I really appreciate coming into this church and worshiping with you guys. Um, Luke chapter 2, verse 21. We're going to read down to verse 32. Um, I'll pray, and I'm going to get us right in this morning, okay? All right, verse 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Let's pray, guys. Matter of fact, just on my heart, can you guys lift up your voices in prayer? If there, I just want to open up. As we come into God's Word, it's not just kind of me guiding the charge necessarily. I want us all to be coming before God. And, and asking Him to, to speak to us. And so if you wouldn't mind, there's a couple of you guys praying, and I'll, I'll close us in prayer and then get us into the message of this morning. Does that make sense? You guys feel free to do that. And if, if it just is an awkward silence, then I'll sit here and uh, for a little while make you suffer, and then I'll pray. But I'd love you guys to be involved in asking God to, to speak to us um, this morning. So feel free. God, we take the posture of um, those under your word. And it's a frightening place for me to be on a stage of some sort, but I pray that the symbol isn't lost by my being here. The symbol is we are a people that 
are under your word. And I'm bringing the word, but it's your word and it's your spirit. And I'm under it along with everybody else, asking you, Jesus, to to speak to us, be present with us. Don't let us, God, don't let us be taken captive by the um, ideologies and philosophies of this world, but rather let us take captive those thoughts, those arguments, and conform them to Christ. We have no idea the war that's going on for our hearts in these moments. We ask you, God, to help us enter into the fray, help us enter in and do battle. It's a fight not with swords of metal, but with the sword of the Spirit. It's a fight not for territory, not for domain, not for thrones. It's a fight for faith in the King of Kings, in the Lord of Lords. So Jesus, I pray that you would allow me to be servant to that end so that you would be exalted. We want to be... Like I've said before, a cross-centered church so that we can become more and more a cross-cultured church, a church that looks like a cross because it trusts in the cross. Help us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you um, for letting me do that. That was nice praying with you guys. Um, I have no real introduction for us today. Sometimes I try to come out, oh, hey, get some flashy intro with a hook and bring you in. Uh, Today I just have, (laughs) I'm basically going to give you my outline for the morning and we're going to get into it, okay? Uh, So hopefully you already had your coffee and you're ready to go. Um, I'm going to divide this text up into two. Um, Looking first at the life that comes through death. This is verses 21 through 24. And then second, at the consolation that comes through waiting. And that's going to be verses 25 through 32. Although I should say, I'm going to leave a detailed exposition of the hymn of Simeon for next time and kind of wrap that in with the verses that follow. So, um, we don't expect too much on those last verses 29 through through 32. Uh, so first, the life that comes through death, verses 21 through 24. Our text begins by bringing us to face the newborn Christ's relation to the law. The law of God. In particular, um, the ceremon- what you might call the ceremonial law or certain aspects of uh, of the law, uh, dealing with these ceremonies or rituals, or what we read here, uh, it's this word called, that uh, Luke says, the custom of the law. Um, you see that in verse 27 and even beyond our text in verse 42. They're coming to do, to kind of fulfill, to partake or participate in these customs of the law. 
that Luke is trying to draw our attention to this um, is evidenced by the multiplication of this term law. Okay, in these few verses, he, he mentions the law, the law of Moses, the law of the Lord numerous times. You see it in verse 22. Verse 23, verse 24, verse 27, and then he kind of wraps it back around again in verse 39, uh, again, beyond our text. But the law is clearly in view. And what we start to see, amazingly, intriguingly, is that, th- that this, this Son of God, the Christ, and His family are not going to kind of walk over the law. They're not like above the law. They're actually coming under it in obedience to it, as everyone else in Israel would be. And when you think about it, it's astounding because Jesus Himself, this child, is in fact co-author of the law, if you will, with the Father and the Spirit, right? And yet, we see that 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 note of humility that was struck at His incarnation, that He's coming low here, just carries on into His infancy, and we'll watch it in His life, and then obviously into His death. He's coming low for you and I. He's coming under the law for us. Now, there are at least three ceremonial elements that are highlighted in our text. Okay? Um, And they appear in this order. I realize sometimes Levitical stuff, the law, these sorts of things can be a little bit, ooh, so bear with me because I'm going to try to make it as understandable as I can for you, and I think you'll see something pretty profound if, if, you, tra- if you trek with me. But the first uh, of the ceremonial kind of elements that we see is the circumcision of a male child in Israel, right? What happened on the eighth day, and you see it there, verse 21. And then the second ceremonial element is um, the purification of a woman that she, after her childbirth, there'd be this purification ritual that would take place. You see that in verse uh, verses 22, the first part, and verse 24. And then the third element that you see is this consecration. The consecration of a firstborn male in Israel. Um, that you see there, the second part of verse 22 and verse 23. So at least... Some scholars argue for four, I'm not going to go into it. Uh, at least three ceremonial elements here present. Jesus is coming, this family, this holy family is coming and participating in these ceremonies. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail for each of these, but before we even investigate, I want to at least first bring out a single principle that I think underlies them all. And this will help orient us as we get into them, okay? And help us not miss the big picture. Here's the principle. Life in a fallen world continues on only through death. Life in a fallen world continues on by God's grace only through death. Humanity's story should have ended at Adam, right? He is kind of the the prototypical covenant breaker. Where God takes him to the forbidden tree and says, In the day that you eat of it, you will surely, what? Die. You will surely die. Adam breaks covenant with God and he does surely die. Right? In one sense. 
Perhaps you would say a spiritual sense. But he does not totally die in a physical, an eternal sense. I'm of the impression that the ground should have just swallowed Adam, you know, opened up and swallowed Adam whole at that point. And yet God in mercy says, no, 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 I want life to continue. But now this life is lived under the threat of death. It should be death for you. Totally, now. But so that life can continue, he, he interposes the death of another. Right? In Adam's case, you see this kind of covering. You see this killing of these animals and the covering of Adam and Eve with the skins. Right? But then they're sent out. But there's this idea that the life I now live, I owe to the death of another in my place. Now, this is what we start to see. I mean, so many of, of these, these confusing ceremonies and, and, and different customs of the Old Testament law driving at this kind of underlying principle. These three are no different. Let me show you them now one by one. In verse 21, we read that at the end of eight days, Jesus was circumcised, right? We dealt with circumcision a little bit with John the Baptist uh, when we saw him there in Luke. Let me just remind us here. Not that you probably need a reminder of what circumcision is, but bear with me. Uh, it's, it's the circumcision, um, just the pure physicality of it, is the cutting off, the cutting off of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ, right? It would happen with the kids in Israel on the eighth day or any proselytes that would come in perhaps in their older years, okay? It is traced all the way back. It originates with Abraham, right? And, and, and it's given to Abraham, and from that point on, it becomes this mark, this mark of the old covenant people of God. Circumcision was huge. It marked the entrance in to this covenant relation with God. But it does more than just mark the, the covenant relation. It reminds Israel of the story. It retells the story in, in, in picture form, in pictorial form, if you will. Here's what I mean. Adam, the commission, what was it? Bear fruit, multiply, fill the earth with God's image bearers. Fill the earth with His image, right? Which obviously would happen through reproduction. But Adam doesn't do that in the fall. Instead of filling the earth now, reproducing the image of God, he reproduces, if you will, the image of the serpent. Death. I mean, death just starts to multiply out from Adam and Eve. I mean, beginning with, with, with Cain and Abel. Right? It's, it's there from the beginning. And so, God, God, not giving up on His original plan, calls out Abraham. And when He does, what He's trying to communicate by circumcision is, (laughs) I'm going to take this dead, this barren, this fallen world, and I'm going to bring in a new life principle. I'm going to cut off the old stuff, the dead stuff, and we're going to start reproducing my image. People renewed in my image here. That's why Abraham and Sarah are what? Barren, childless. 
They can produce no fruit. They're not filling the earth with anything. God says, that's the kind of people that can help me retell the story. They, can, they can't have any children. I'm going to them because this is about me cutting off the old, doing away with the old, and bringing in a new principle of life. Okay? So circumcision then is like this picture, this cutting away of the flesh, the old, the dead, the unproductive thing on the male reproductive organ so that this new life principle emerges. Isaac, the child of promise. And we are those that are in Abraham if we're in faith, right? This spiritual community we come to see. God is going to bring life, but it is now through the mediation of death, the cutting off of the flesh, the putting to death, if you will, of the flesh, so that spirit can come forward in new life. Something else was cut off so that his people would not have to be. That's the picture. That's the story. Life now owes its very existence to death. Now, it gets interesting here with purification, verses uh, 22 and 24. The beginning of verse 22, what we read is that this time came for their purification. Their purification. And then in verse 24, we see these sacrifices that are offered for this purification according to the prescriptions in Leviticus 12. I'm not going to take us there. You can go there if you want. But here's the crazy thing. And I struggled with this, honestly. As I, as I, as I, as I read this, I was like, God, what, what does this mean? A woman, just for giving birth, was ceremonially, ritually unclean. Due to things like the flow of blood and, and other stuff that would happen. Just for giving birth, she is unclean. Seven days unclean. She remains in her uncleanness. Eighth day, they would circumcise the child. But then for the 33 days after those seven, she's not allowed to, to go into the sanctuary, go, in, go near anything holy. Until 40 days, and this is, this is what we see here, the time came for their purification. So 40 days later, she would come into the temple, offer up a burnt offering and a sin offering, and then be considered clean again and, and, and have access into to God's holy presence in the sanctuary and things. I thought to myself, that just seems wrong, right? That seems uncool. Not only does she have to deal with the, <laughs> the pain of childbirth and the, the labor, but now you're telling me that she's unclean for this. What is God getting at with this? What's the implication behind this sort of stuff in the Old Testament that can just kind of confuse us and trouble us? Well, since the fall, Eve's pain had been multiplied in childbearing, right? Genesis 3.16. Part of the curse because of sin. Here's the fact of the matter. It is now an unclean thing to be alive. It hurts just to be here. We're born in sin. I mean, you remember this text in um, Psalm 51.5? I was brought forth in iniquity. 
And in sin did my mother conceive me, right? Or Ephesians 2, 3. We are by nature children of wrath. By nature. From the womb, by nature, children of wrath. Born, you know, conceived in sin. God is not wanting us to forget, if you will, the story. He's not wanting us to forget we owe our lives to the death of another. That even when we are bearing fruit, we are in fact perpetuating sin. And so in the very act of giving birth and bringing in new life, there is this sense that it better be covered by death. It better be covered by sacrifice. And therefore, she's unclean and needs to offer sacrifice to cover, to cleanse. Because life now, due to sin, is an unclean thing. Consecration, the third thing we see. The consecration of the firstborn. This is verse uh, 22, second part. Um, and then into verse 23. We're told that Joseph and Mary bring Jesus up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord. To present Him to the Lord. And this presentation is then explained in uh, what at least the ESV puts in parentheses after that. In verse 23 it says, As it is written in the law of the Lord, here you go, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And that's kind of a, a joint quotation, if you will, taken from like Exodus 13 and Numbers 18. But it's drawing on this principle, it's re, or I'm sorry, this ceremony referring to um, the consecration of the firstborn males in Israel. Okay? Consecration is this idea of, 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 of um, giving it up to God and in that be, it becoming kind of consecrated. Giving something up as holy to God. Right? And so God is saying, the firstborn males in Israel, all of them, consecrated to me. Why? If you do the background research, which I won't make you do, this, this uh, ceremony is, is traced all the way back to the Exodus. Okay? It's traced back to that time in Israel where they were freed from slavery in the house of Egypt. That tenth plague, this is the key, that tenth plague where, where God, where God kills in judgment the firstborn of, of all the Egyptian, both male children and livestock. He, he kills them in judgment, but he passes over the firstborn children and livestock, actually, of Israel. But not by virtue of their own goodness, of their own nobility, by virtue of the blood of the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, right? That spoke against the, the uh, angel of death and uh, saved their lives. So the idea then is, is, is so here, I should say, here's what would happen. Uh, in remembrance of, of this great redemption, the firstborn male of both animal and men were to be consecrated from that point on to the Lord. 
remembering Exodus. I mean, the Exodus is the constitutive moment for the people of Israel, and God is constantly bringing them back there. Don't forget, you are a people that have been redeemed from that. It's just an analogy for what He tries to do with us in the cross, as we'll see. But just don't forget redemption, redemption, redemption. So he, he, he builds it into every ceremony, every festival, everything that they identify themselves by. And this is no different. So the firstborn males of both animal and man are consecrated to him. For animals, sadly, this meant they'd be killed. They'd be sacrificed. But for, 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 for the, the boys, it meant that they would be redeemed. At first it was by the blood of a lamb, and then later it became uh, by like five shekels. You would, you would ransom, you would redeem, you would pay for the life of this child. You would give that to God so that this child could live. You catching where I'm going here? So the idea, the principle that God is establishing in all of this is plain. You owe your life to death the death of another in your place. He doesn't want his people to forget this. Check this out. This is interesting when when God's telling them, how do you explain this to your boy later on? How do you explain this ceremony to your to your kids? You know, what what are you supposed to tell them about these sorts of things? That a lamb's now being killed just so you can live. This is Exodus 13, 13 through 15. It's awesome. God's always and everywhere trying to teach the gospel to his people. It says this, Every firstborn of man among you, among your sons, you shall redeem. And when in time to come, your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It's this, this ceremony built into their very kind of lifestyle to, as so that they can keep before the memory of their people the exodus from Egypt. Don't you forget it, child. We owe our lives to the death of that lamb and the grace of our God. I mean, we're so prone to think that we deserve life. We're born feeling that way, right? Like entitled, and it's all about us. And God is saying that is the essence of the problem. It's why we put ourselves under the Word, and I pray the way I do, because I know this is not what we naturally want to hear. That I don't deserve life. That what came for the Egyptians is what ought to have come for me. That the wages of sin are death. Now I'm a sinner. And so God is everywhere saying, keep this in your mind and teach this to your children. You don't deserve to be here. You are here. You are alive because of death. The last um, part of, of, uh, of this text, verse 16 in Exodus 13, indicates kind of this perpetual awareness that Yahweh wants for His people to have of this principle. 
Listen to this. It says, It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, like the phylactery kind of thing, this thing they would put between their eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. In other words, I want you to see it everywhere. This principle, this idea, you came at, you were redeemed from Egypt, from the house of slavery. Keep it before you always. Mark on your hand, in, be- in between your eyes, so it's just always there, always aware. I owe my life to death by His grace. So in all these ceremonies then, there has been a reminder of of the great underlying principle, right? That I am alive, but only through death. I'm born, I am born in desperate need of salvation. If the dead thing isn't cut off, if the unclean thing isn't washed, if the enslaved thing isn't redeemed, I will not make it out alive. Make sense? And of course then, turning to our text, and Jesus who is now coming in, entering in, coming under these laws, if you will, we have the one who's come to fulfill all these ceremonies, the one to whom all of these things pointed. Listen to Galatians 4, 3 through 5. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We're the enslaved. We're the ones enslaved to sin. We're the ones deserving of death. We're the ones that Jesus has come for to to redeem, to adopt, to bring back to life by virtue of His death accomplishment on the cross. We owe now our lives to His death. As pictured in the circumcision custom, He was on the cross, right? The dead thing cut off from the land of the living. Treated as just dead flesh. Sinful flesh in need of being cut off. He's cut off on that cross so that now in yours and my heart, it's the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, right? A new life principle starts to emerge in the people of God. We live because He was cut off in death. As pictured in the purification custom, He would be treated as the unclean thing on the cross, right? As he would even talk about the, the, the cross as kind of his, the pains of labor. He's like giving birth, and the, obviously there's this flow of blood, and he's the unclean thing on that cross, right? So that, so that you and I can be born again 
in purity and holiness. The new birth, there's no need for, for purification. The new birth is by virtue of, of, of its, very, its very essence, a, a purity and a, a consecrating to God and a holiness. It is the Spirit in me. The Holy Spirit in me. So where we once first were born in sin because of Jesus, treated as the unclean thing, we are born into cleanness. We are born into purity and into His righteousness. As pictured in the consecration custom, this one's very clear. He is the Passover lamb. He is the one that was slain. There's a reason why he went to the cross that we could pass over. It's because God said, this is, this is what it's all been about. The whole thing with Exodus and the house of slavery, that's humanity. That's the nations. That's you and I. And Jesus is the Lamb whose blood speaks against the angel of death. Not this house. Not this man. Pass on by. He, he is the firstborn of God killed for us. We owe our lives to His death. Now, the Israelites had such customs and ceremonies built into the very fabric of their culture, right? God, it's like God did not want them to miss this principle. He didn't want them to miss it. And he's jealous for us here this morning. I mean, they were the old covenant people with the shadows, if you will. We are a new covenant people with the substance in Christ. All that that was pointing to, we now have in him in fullness. But God is still jealous. He is still jealous that we not forget this underlying principle. The principle hasn't changed. You and I owe our lives to His death. That, that principle hasn't changed. It's just kind of gotten clearer. We're just going to see it more clearly. And here's the question then. Here's the question. Are the customs that define our daily, uh, daily life self-centered? Or are they cross Centered. We might not, we might not have to deal with the spectrum of cleanliness and things that like, that, that, that God set up in the Old Testament law. Because Jesus has made us clean once for all, right? We might not have to deal with the idea of daily sacrificing for sins and always keeping the fires of the, uh, under the burnt offering going, you know? Because He was the sacrifice for sin once and for all. So we don't have these necessarily daily customs built in. But I think we ought to learn from them and consider our customs. Are they self-centered? Or are they cross-centered? Do we have just kind of daily routines or weekly things that keep us centered on this reality? He died so I can live. It's something God does not want us to forget. So do we, and obviously, yeah, I know the answer to this, do we gather in the assembly of the saints, for example, to, to pray and hear and sing the gospel, see the cross afresh together? Do we, in our, in our baptism, the waters of baptism, 
He gives us some customs, by the way, just not as many as in Leviticus. In baptism, do we see, I owe, I owe my Christian life to the cold waters of his grave. That's what's pictured there. When we break the bread of communion together, do we perceive in it, it's his body broken for me. That not only in baptism does the Christian life begin by his death, but we see in communion the Christian life continues. It perpetuates to the end by virtue of his death. Do this in remembrance of me, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. Are we personally searching the Scriptures for fresh glimpses of Calvary in the morning watch, you know, of our devotions? Are we getting up and, and have we built that sort of custom into our life where, where, where we're looking for the cross, we're preaching the gospel to ourselves, we're asking Jesus, show us more of you, and we're searching, him in, searching out um, for Him in His Word so that we're not viewing this world uh, uh, through the lens of ourselves and what we want. We're viewing it through His Word. And everything starts to feel like grace to us. Because we see what we deserve and yet what we've been given and all of my life is owed to His grace and death. Or are we with our Savior in Gethsemane when we're in kind of the midnight of our prayers? Are we there with Him? Are we keeping our focus on the cross and aware that He's with us in the, in the midst of our pain? And we're crying out to Him not just kind of like a, like a master would cry out to his servant, do this for me. But just aware of, of, of his grace, aware of his death for us and amazed and, insur- and assured that he is ready to come to our aid. In all our thoughts, words and deeds, have we with the Apostle Paul decided to know nothing? except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the idea, right? It's the, the idea, all that was kind of built into the fabric of the old covenant society, just kind of comes into the new. We're given more freedom, but we should still consider our customs. Are we cross-centered people? Are we staying there in our hearts? Is it, I tell you what, it's, it's like it's impossible. It's impossible for bitterness to take root in a cross-centered heart. Is it possible for pride to start to just well up in a cross-centered heart? Because we're just focused there. And we live our lives in light of His death. We're just aware that we don't deserve anything. This is amazing. Just thinking about how, consider this. In the Gospel, it's as if God rolls out the red carpet for His children. where we get to walk now. We get to walk because of what Jesus did. We get to walk in freedom. We get to walk to glory. We're co-heirs with Christ of the world. We're just walking there. We just have this incredible privilege as the children of God. But, may we never forget why that carpet is red in the first place. Right? It's red with the blood of the Lamb. That's 
where I'm going with this. So we walk in freedom. We walk with joy. We walk with the privilege of being called the children of God, and it is amazing. But we never forget (laughs) how that carpet was rolled out. We never forget. That's, That's what was Israel's big problem. They forgot Egypt. They forgot Exodus. They forgot God's grace. We want to be, no way, I can't even believe, I can't even believe I'm getting this right now. I can't even believe I'm alive. I can't even believe what's waiting for me there. I know what I deserve. I'm getting polar opposite times infinity in hell. As we continue on in our text, we... um, We'll come now to our second point here, the, the consolation that comes through waiting. And uh, we meet a dear saint in the Lord here uh, that we can learn a lot from. He's a man righteous and, and devout. This is Simeon. He's a man full of the Word and Spirit of God. He's a man who knows how to wait. Okay? And I want to be like him. I want us to be like him. Let's get into his story for a moment. We're not going to spend all that much time here, and it's not necessarily connected to all that's come before, but I want to move on in, in Luke with you guys. Luke tells us that for his whole life, he's been waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, with the word consolation, we're kind of dropped in, if you will, to the Isaiah uh, prophecies concerning this messianic servant and this, this a- the messianic age that he's going to bring in. Um, so that kind of begins in Isaiah 40 and carries on from there. All right? Um, at this point in the, the prophecies of Isaiah, there in chapter 40, it's as if 8th, 8th century B.C. Isaiah is speaking to 6th century B.C., Israel in exile. He's foreseeing the exile, and he's addressing them there. And consolation is the key. <laughs> I want you to notice how what his opening line is. As he starts to address the exiles, as he starts to look ahead and address these people who will be in pain, under God's judgment even, in those days, here is what he says. Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort, or same word, console my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Isaiah, 8th century B.C., saying, listen, it's going to get hard. It's going to get real hard. You're going to be under judgment for your sin. But I am telling you, consolation is coming. Comfort is coming. This is what Simeon is waiting for. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. If we trek with Isaiah still, you just see that this idea of consolation permeates his prophecies from this point forward. I'll just read a few to you. You can just listen. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has 
comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Isaiah 49:13. Isaiah 51:3. For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. This is what you want to hear when you're in exile, right? Some of us are there right now, we feel like. Isaiah 52, 9 and 10. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So, 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 I mean, 800 years or whatever before Isaiah is communicating this. And Zechar, or I'm sorry, Simeon now is reading this sort of stuff and going, no way, I think this is happening right now. I think this consolation, this comfort that was promised for exiles then is coming for us now because kind of come full circle with uh, Isaiah 52, 9 and 10 there uh, because it seems like Simeon basically takes these words up on his lips as he sings over this child. He's saying, this is, this is the one. It's the Christ. The consolation is coming through Christ. Here's what, listen to Simeon's words. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So comfort, consolation, salvation, redemption, life is all coming through this child. The Christ, the Messianic servant, who we know, Isaiah 53, is also the suffering servant. Right, the one who would give himself up to death so that we could have life. And Simeon is saying, he is here. This is the one. This is where comfort is going to be found. But, here's the point I'm going to leave us with. He had to wait his whole life to see it. We get the sense of this from the mention of, of, of his death in verse 26 and his departure in verse 29. We get this idea that he's old, that he's advanced in years, that he's been waiting his whole life for the consolation of Israel. And I have to imagine that there were hopeless seasons, right? He kind of embodies what I imagine Israel felt. I got the scroll of Isaiah talking about consolation and I feel nothing. I don't see anything. And Simeon kind of embodies that at the very end, in the last act of his life. Here it comes. God is true to his word and Simeon is vindicated in his waiting. We have to confront ourselves with this question. 
Are we, are we willing to wait? Are we waiting for the consolation of the Lord? Or are we working for a consolation of our own? You know what I'm saying here? I mean, this is hard. This is hard. I, I was, because I was kind of reflecting on this. Um, I remember when I first found God, or I should say when God first found me, right? It was like, it was like everything I had ever been looking for was found in Him, right? I can't explain it, but you just had the, the sense of His presence with me, this, this comfort that I couldn't explain. But I just, I was, I was different, and I knew it, and He was walking with me in an intimate way for years, for years, just babying me, I felt like. Just like, come here, man. And every, around every corner, I was seeing Him at work in my life. It was incredible. But I'll tell you this, a few years down the road, Suddenly, I enter this time of testing, this time of waiting, right? Where, where, where all you have is His Word. Where there's no, like, exhilarating sense of His presence. There's no kind of just thrill of, of, whoa, look at what he just did in ministry or whatever. There, there was none of that. There was no comforting sense necessarily of his presence. It was just, I got your word and I'm waiting. And I started to see that this is part of where he's going to take his people now. And it's hard, it stinks, but it's how He develops our faith and He refines our hearts and He develops our character and He prepares us for glory. And He babies us so much in the beginning so that we're, we're, we're aware, okay, what He's doing now is for my good, but it's hard, right? And everything in us when we have to wait says, I'm sick of waiting. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to start working for a salvation of my own. I want to get consolation one way or another. There are whole industries in our economy devoted to giving you immediate consolation and undermining the purpose of God and waiting on Him, waiting for Him to bring it. Some of you might even be here today in that place you're just sick of the waiting room sick of it you know I don't want to wait around for a consolation I no longer believe is coming and so you're ready you know you're ready to abandon the marriage walking out sick of it I don't care what God's Word says anymore. I want consolation and I want it now. Are you ready? Just forget, you know, living the Christian life and giving my money to church and other... I want the good thing, the finer things of life. My money, it's mine. I'm going to put all of my assets towards that. Forget a mission... God up there some I'm going to make sure I spend the last years of my life in comfort. Because where is He? I hesitated on this, but I figured I would say, honestly, 
There could be. I, 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 I'm amazed sometimes by what's in the church you don't even know. There could be people in this room that consolation for you is a gun held up to your temple. You know? He's not coming. God is a no-show. We're sitting around. We're waiting. He is not showing up. This seems like consolation to me. It's over. And I'm saying, I'm pleading with us and with my own heart, let's learn from Simeon here. Let's learn from Simeon together as a church. Right? He's coming. He's faithful. It might not be until the last act. You see it. Jesus had to wait through death. And guess what? A lot of us will too. It wasn't until He was on the other side of the grave that He said, there's my consolation. And we follow with Him in that. We take up our crosses. And He says, consolation, it is coming. Believe me, wait for it. Don't work for it on your own. It's coming. It might even, it will even be through death. It's going to be hard. But hang on. I'm going to close by putting in your hands perhaps the same text that Simeon clung to all those years of waiting. It's awesome. It's no coincidence that Isaiah 40 which begins with the declaration of comfort and consolation, ends with an exhortation to wait. Okay? Some of you already know the verse I'm going to because you probably live there. <laughs> we just hold on to some of these verses in Isaiah 40, 27-31 is one of them. God knows the consolation isn't going to come as quick as His people want. So He calls us to wait and to trust Him. I haven't forgotten you. Let's look at, look at this. I imagine this might be this Simeon, this guy who's waiting for the consolation of Israel that's, that, that we see there in Isaiah 41. I imagine this is what gave him strength to wait down at the end in, of chapter 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And my right is disregarded by my God. Felt that way? You said that before? In other words, where's God? He said one thing, he's doing another. Where is he? Now hear, hear this declaration over your life. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But, verse 31, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings, or with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Simeon heard the promise of consolation coming. 
And he heard the exhortation to wait for it. And he held on to it with all of his life to the very end. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. His story will be ours. Hang on. Hang on. Let's pray. Jesus, we are, like I titled the sermon, we are washed and we are waiting. There's this weird part of the Christian life where we're already justified, already clean, already sanctified, already even glorified, it would seem in Romans 8. It's so sure, our future. Our whole lives lived by virtue of what you've accomplished. And yet, the fullness of that accomplishment hasn't been applied to us. And so we're called to look back and remember. And as we look forward and wonder when the comfort fully is coming, we're called to wait. I'm praying you'd help us as we're somewhere in the middle. The cross and the crown. The shame and the glory. I pray, Jesus, that you would now bring comfort to your people by the Spirit. You have entered into the consolation fully. And you bring now to us the paraclete, the comforter, the helper, to come alongside and console us in your Spirit. Be with those people who resonated with with Simeon and with what we had to share, that just tired. Give them strength, God, to wait. Help them to focus in on that cross behind them and wait for the glory ahead of them. In Jesus' name, amen.